1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Foundation Radio. Uh, My name is Adam, which you already know. Um, Initially, we were planning on bringing you the Breakfast Meet-Off Super Showdown, and we were working on some different things like Dungeons & Dragons 2 and a couple of different things we aren't really allowed to talk about. Um, And then things changed, uh, and we kind of got together as a group and we decided that it was a a good idea uh, to probably postpone Uh, A bunch of our stuff, our bunch of our in-person recording stuff, at least for the time being. Um, This coronavirus has kind of taken over everything, and it's made everybody really uneasy. It's made everybody kind of panicky, kind of worried. And we decided that it was in the best interest of us uh, collectively and individually to probably hold off on doing anything, uh, at least for now. We don't know how long it's going to take. You know, my kids are home now, at least for two weeks. Um, I'm still going to the city. Uh, I'm still working. Uh, So we're trying to just make everything work right now. Uh, But anyway, uh, I wanted to think of a way to still continue to deliver content to everybody who's listening, and we appreciate everyone who's listening to us, and we appreciate all, all listens we get and everyone that talks about us. It's really quite exciting, and we thank you. But I wanted to dig into the archives a little bit and come up with something that maybe I thought would uh, bring some ease and some comfort to anyone. Um, Greg and I, in 2012, we got to interview Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson when we were on WCUR. Uh, We interviewed him with Jake Summers, who's a great friend of the show. And it was really quite a cool experience. It took about six months for us to get everything together and to put it all in in the works and get the wheels moving. Uh, Went through a couple different publicists, and it was around the time that his book, Space Chronicles, came out. And uh, it's still uh, amazingly, you know, even eight years later, this interview has held up really, really well. A lot of the stuff that he talks about is very, very um, pressing today, um, especially with things like NASA and, you know, some of the other things he talks about. He tells a really fun story about Pluto and, you know, why he doesn't care about Pluto being demoted as a planet. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really great interview. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Uh, it was, it was a, you know, a dream from a long time. Um, you know, it's kind of a... Uh, a marquee item for Greg and I to do, uh, especially when we were in college, and I felt like right at the end of my college career, it was my last big thing that I did, and I was excited to, uh, to, to do it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm really proud of this interview, so I wanted to share this with you, uh, and if you've never heard it for the first time, it's really, you know, I hope you enjoy it, and if you've heard it again, this will be the second time you've heard it, or the third time, I hope you enjoy it still. So uh, without further ado, here is Foundation Radio's interview with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you our guest today. He's the world's most recognizable astrophysicist. He's also the director of the Hayden Planetarium and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. His new book, Space Chronicles, is available right now. You can recognize him from the Nova Science Now show on PBS. Also real time with Bill Moore, the Colbert Report, and countless other appearances. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. How you doing, sir? Good to talk to you. Yes. You have three people there applauding. Thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, uh, I heard you called this morning uh, before I came into the studio, and I, I have to be honest with you. I was about as giddy as a uh, a teenage girl waiting for a phone call from the Jonas Brothers. I was just so... <laughs> I was so excited to have you on the air. and uh, we're I'm curious busy.
3: how you actually know what that feels
2: like. I, you I, you know, <laughs>
4: I'm you
2: not go. really sure. I don't think I should answer that. <laughs> but uh, Let's get right into it. Um, you know, Your new book, Space Chronicles, it's a collection of interviews, essays, and uh, there's a couple poems in there um, about the, from the course of your career dealing with the issue of space exploration. It
3: seems as yeah, as it's a, every thought I've ever had about our past, present, and future in space. It's, it's right?
2: really a fantastic read. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I read it in about three days. It's really very good. It seems that the biggest question in your book is about what happened to the dream Of the country. um, Exactly. Where do you think they went? What do you think happened?
3: Well, so here's the problem. Well, here's the challenge. In our golden era of space exploration, of course, that was the Apollo era. What motivated that is what we all forget. What motivated it was that we were at war with Russia. Sputnik gets launched. Did you know that Sputnik, that spacecraft, was the shell of an intercontinental ballistic missile, but with the warhead removed? And they named really? it Sputnik, which means fellow traveler. And they put in a little radio transmitter that went beep, beep. And so to the <laughs> average person just tracking it, it's, oh, isn't that nice? But to the military folks, it was, whoa. Right. They, can, they can, you know, if it, it doesn't have a warhead today, but it could have a warhead tomorrow. So within a year, uh, we founded NASA. And so the motivation for us to go into space was never to explore. It was never the the original driver. It was never for all of these lofty goals. It was to beat the Russians. And so, so meanwhile, even though we're at war with Russia, it's still a glorious adventure. And so that's the part of it that we remember. And so when we get to the moon and we learn that Russia was had was really never going to get to the moon at, at that point.
4: Right, right. We
3: stopped going to the moon. And when you realize it as a military adventure, it's obvious why we stopped going to the moon. But for those who saw it as the next natural thing for humans to do, it's in our DNA. Then they cry foul and say, why didn't we continue to Mars? So the whole history of this is a mismatch between people's expectations and what actually happens because they're deeply seated delusional thinking throughout the entire
2: period. Now, now I know you, you brought up Sputnik, and that kind of leads me into my next question. You, you talk in the book about we lack this Sputnik moment right now, um, you know, especially what happened in the 1960s with the space race and everything that we had just said, but uh, do you think the, that these developing countries that are working like China and, and um, Israel and Iran, I mean, do you think they're going to provide another moment like that to give us a Sputnik moment? I think we're already
3: living through a Sputnik moment. Our economy is fading while the economies of other nations are rising. Nations whose economies we would have never imagined would be surpassing ours or competing with ours Right. As in the past decades, of course, and so, so the Sputnik moment, as uh, uh, President Obama announced a year ago's State of the Union address, he, he, he rightly recognized that we're being outcompeted, outeducated, outmanufactured. This is a cultural Sputnik moment. My great disappointment in his State of the Union address, again, this is a year ago's State of the Union, was he says it's a Sputnik moment. Here's what we need to do. And so I'm ready for that next big adventure that's going to be announced. And he says, "Okay, we need high-speed rail. Okay, we need energy independence. We need everyone with access to the internet." And I'm saying, "Is that your Sputnik moment? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that should have happened anyway."
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what you want to accomplish here. I don't. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that should have been.
3: Space. I don't invoke Sputnik to accomplish that. That's a that's a given. Don't you know? And so so here's the thing. Back then, we went. We were driven by war, but the economy benefited greatly for reasons that are not often written about. We benefited greatly because of the cultural shift in our sense of ourselves, in our capacity to think about what tomorrow means to ourselves. And the people who bring tomorrow into today are the scientists and engineers and technologists. And so when that is your culture, you are in a culture of innovation. And when you innovate, jobs don't go overseas because they don't know how to go overseas. Because the overseas people haven't figured it out yet. All this talk today about jobs going overseas, that's, that's the fallout of the fact that we're not innovating. Not because you know we, we cry foul, oh, they're paying their workers less. If we innovated... It wouldn't matter what they pay the workers; they wouldn't know what we were doing because right, we right. be so far ahead of them.
2: Absolutely. Now I know it's it's funny you mentioned Pres- President Obama with you know the the, the talk about the high speed rails. Um, his budget cut and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is this these are the numbers that I read. The budget cuts for NASA overall are going to roughly equal a compromise of their budget uh, by about thirty eight point five percent, which is an enormous number. Um, that means that most of the funding for a lot of these Mars missions that we're doing is uh, they're going to be halted, and and all of the ideas that we have about going to the moon are just out the window. Do you think there's a, a specific reason as to why NASA is being targeted the way they are for their cuts, or do you think it's just a lack of, uh, a lack of interest with the American people and, and the uh, politicians in general?
3: Okay, so I have, to, uh, I have to fix a couple of things that you said. Okay. So first, the, the NASA, the larger, that 38-but-30-something percent that you mentioned, mm-hmm. that cut relates to the fact that we're not sending, continuing to send shuttles into space.
4: Oh, okay. So All right.
3: if you take that out of the budget, now you have to look at what remains. Now, what remains also had some cuts and some redistributions of monies within the science portfolio. And the cost of that was that the, the famous James Webb Space Telescope that sort of follow-on from the Hubble does get the extra funding that it needed at uh, the cost okay. of other projects that were in place. For example, the planetary program gets hit. Well, you know, Earth and Mars align every two years for a good orbital trajectory. And the, 19, the 2016 cycle and the 2018 cycle will have no missions to Mars. So the entire oh. planetary science community, that just happened last week, is up in arms about this. And so, and I think rightly so, where with, with they're fighting for pennies on an adventure that's helped define who we are as Americans in this in this century. So, So I have deep concerns about... People thinking that NASA is just some luxury of scientists when everybody you've ever spoken to has a Hubble picture on this as a screensaver on their computer. Looked at some of these photographic images and have basked in their majesty without even having to read the caption of what it was they were looking at.
2: I can tell you for a fact that I have a, uh, a picture of a horsehead nebula uh, as my background on my on my laptop and my home computer, and and I, I just feel like I, I feel like there's a lot of lost energy with with things it, like this. It's the horsehead nebula. The horsehead nebula. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> okay. Greg, Greg, I was going to correct him, but I uh, I'll let that one go. Aha, Greg. I got it first. Greg. <laughs> Greg. Uh, Greg is our resident geologist in the field here, so yes. he uh, he's been helping me all day prepare for these uh, these questions, and so I don't. Sound <laughs> like a total jackass, but... <laughs> yeah. Now, Dr. Tyson, um,
5: I, I know as a taxpayer, and most of our listeners are taxpayers, uh, can you help us understand exactly how much tax dollars go to NASA? I, I just find it very interesting how much really goes into NASA from a dollar of my paycheck.
3: Yeah, so that's an excellent uh, question. So, so one way I like to think about it is if you hold up the dollar, you know, a, a single you know, George Washington dollar bill, and you slide a, knife, a, a scissor along the bottom and say, where do you have to cut from left to right, across that bill, to equal sort of the fraction of that dollar that goes to NASA. And so the fraction is one-half of one percent of that dollar. So you, when you cut off wow. the left edge, you're not even into the ink of the bill. <laughs> wow. Okay? That's wow. Fine. So that's fact one. Fact two, so, so it's small. That one-half of one percent pay for the space station and the space shuttles and the Hubble telescope and the rovers and all the astronauts and all 10 NASA centers, one-half of one percent, What's what what's remarkable to me is that the people who imagine NASA getting a much bigger budget would have never considered that it was that small. And the fact that people think NASA's budget is large is evidence that NASA must be doing something right.
0: Absolutely, because
3: that's, the visibility of every dollar spent is extraordinary. It's probably the most visible money spent in the country. No. And so so now so so the real exercise here is not even how much NASA is getting, but what is NASA getting compared with other activities. A common concern is, why are we spending money up there and not down here? We have real social problems and issues down here. Okay, let's look at the budget for social issues. You do that, you add up all the social programs and education, the money we spend on social programs and education, it is 50 times the the NASA budget. Wow. 50 times. So so what, do you want to zero NASA and hand it over to this other chunk of money and believe that somehow that's going to transform society? No. (laughs) No. If you live in a like country that. where your portfolio of spending accommodates the needs of the country on, on, on all fronts, so you're going to give money to art because, as has once been said, if you're fighting a war and you say, "Well, do you give money to the war effort or to the art?" Well, you want to remind yourself what it is you're fighting for,
2: right? right exactly. Yeah, <laughs> have a reason to do it. Yeah, it,
3: there's a reason to do it right. but because right. we do these great things, and so, so, but my my biggest point in all of this is the. There's a cultural shift when a nation embarks on a major adventure of discovery and and, and exploration. And that cultural shift in modern times has a direct impact on our creativity, uh, on on our scientific and engineering creativity, and that's what drives the economics of the next century. Other countries know this, and we've been fading because we've forgotten it.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you.
6: Do you think if there is a conscious effort to get the public rallied around space exploration again, do you think that NASA would, would become less of a political football and more of a true American reality?
3: Yeah, exactly. Once we, att- once we recognize it as part of our American identity, then it transcends politicians. It transcends, it transcends fl- uh, political wins. It would even transcend economic upturns and downturns because we would recognize it as the most effective and efficient investment in our economic future. Once you've done that, the two things, my read of history showed me, that there are two great drivers of great things that civilizations have done. One of them is war, the I-don't-want-to-die driver, and the other one right, is
4: right.
3: wealth, I-don't-want-to-die poor, right? And, mm-hmm. so, yep. uh, and while it takes a couple of steps to make the argument, it is nonetheless a strong argument to 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 say that when we are embarking on great adventures we are stimulated to creative thinking and we start dreaming about tomorrow and all the tomorrows we dream are greater than the tomorrow than, than the todays that we live and back in the golden era of space exploration everybody was thinking about tomorrow tomorrowland the city of tomorrow the, the transportation tomorrow was in our reach.
2: Even some of those old-school posters that they have and, and, and advertisements, I mean, you see them in, the, in Back to the Future with the, you know, the, um, the suburbs, the, the, the vision of tomorrow, even things like that. I mean, I... life
6: of tomorrow. Exactly.
2: I can't even think of a time where I've ever, in my lifetime, seen anything close to, uh, you know, anyone dreaming or anyone having these ideas It all stopped.
3: Anymore. It all right. stopped, and it coincided with our expanding the space frontier. Now, over the past several decades, we've had the Space Shuttle. Which, which, which expanded an engineering frontier as it constructed the space station. And that's an, it's a remarkable piece of zero G hardware. But it does not deny the fact that the space shuttle was boldly going where hundreds had gone before. It was not advancing a space frontier. And the concern about apathy, about our, our presence in space, derives directly from the fact that we were not advancing that frontier. I assure you that if we send astronauts back, and are going places that no one has gone before. That would be headlines every single day until they arrive. Oh, absolutely! And we'd, be, and we'd be wondering what school teachers did they have as kids, and what made them on that as brave as they are on those missions. And then they come back, and we build statues to them. That's what our culture has done forever. We honor those who explore and who risk their lives to learn something new, to go places that no one has gone before. That—that's the kind of environment, the kind of zeitgeist, the kind of mindset that prevailed in the 1960s. That's when we had the World Fair, for goodness sake, that was so widely written about because of its, uh, how it thought about tomorrow
2: absolutely. And, you know, it's it's, it's speaking of tomorrow and, and all these ideas, and you, you mentioned this, and I, I really got excited because I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Um, you said, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And in your book, you give an ode to Star Trek. Uh, it's towards the end of the book, but um, do you think that Gene Roddenberry was ahead of his time by about 40 years, or do you think it was more like several thousand? I mean, what what do you think the cultural impact of a show like Star Trek at that time while the space race was going on and the way it came out, and even so much as to say the first motion picture um, with the Voyager concept and that and that tie-in, I mean, do you how, how culturally important and uh, to, to the rest of these ideas was Gene Roddenberry and, and his views on space exploration and human life?
3: Yeah, great great question. I, Gene Robert, Roddenberry was an important cog in a large wheel that was being turned by the visions of, of, of Stanley Kubrick in 2001. There were other movies of that era, like Marooned. There was Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. These were seriously uh, thought-out, uh, a space-based, science fiction films, exploring different uh, challenges and risks and, and, and joys of what that enterprise involved. What distinguished Star Trek, by my read of that series compared with others, is how it used the space frontier as a way to reflect social issues back on us. And take a look at some of the themes of, those, of that storytelling. So I think its greatest strength wasn't simply that they showed modern trappings of, of medicine and, and, and analysis and planet visits and, and galaxy hopping, but that there, we, could, we could learn about ourselves in this, in this new kind of context. And I think that was its strength above all else. Uh, Gene Roddenberry deeply understood the human condition. And by the way, I, if I if I confess to you,
2: sure, absolutely. <laughs> so
3: there they are on this ship, and I saw it, you know, almost in real time when it came out. I'm I'm that old, and <laughs> um, and there they are on a ship in the 21st century, crossing the galaxy, and th- they walk up to the doors, and the doors open, and I say, "Oh, that can never
4: happen."
3: <laughs> 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 At the time, doors did not open for you and, and i said how does the door know he's there what, and, and I, I was in denial of that but somehow accepted the spaceship uh, that's uh, i confess that
2: you you mean to tell me that we're going to have talking boxes that we can communicate with each other with <laughs> <Get> <laughs> I was,
3: no that was i was okay with that I was yeah, yeah.
2: Doors. oh just the sliding doors yeah okay well, well that's okay
3: <laughs> and we do have sliding doors and they don't even
2: go whoosh i was you just know? gonna they, say it's silent. It, it's that it's a new technology
5: yeah. um the, there, there, there was something uh, that, that we mentioned. Adam just mentioned it uh, when the motion picture came out. Star War, you know, of uh, not Star Wars, Star Trek. Way to uh, go, Jake! Jeez, <laughs> get uh, out of here, amateur! I, I got to get it right. Um, yes, when when the when the original motion picture came out, and uh, you learn at the end that Voyager, the whole movie was actually Voyager, and that the Voyager missions had actually recently been launched uh, before the picture came out um yeah. and and i hear you know from from my mom who, who was a big trekkie uh... that it was very exciting for everybody you know at the time because i mean the voyager missions which is awesome
6: your mom is a trekkie that, so, that's awesome my mom took me to see <laughs> the new star trek
3: i,
5: I mean were, were you around to see that the the, the ending of the motion picture and how would you feel about that
3: okay so first uh, just to remind people in case they hadn't seen it or they weren't born yet the 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 most star trek the motion picture which would sort have of resurrected the entire crew from the original series uh, that that sort of reintroduced this whole sort of grand uh, storytelling large palette mission statement to a, to a new generation, and, and, and that was great. In there, they folded in the fact that there's this Voyager spacecraft that visited the planets with a mission to explore and to get as much information as it can about these objects. What distinguished Voyager from other, many other missions is that it had enough energy to escape the gravitational uh, embrace of the sun. Wow. And would uh, would leave the solar system and go journeying throughout the galaxy. And so that was, the, uh, and Carl Sagan knew that and his collaborators, and so they affixed to the side of Voyager messages in case that crap was, was captured and analyzed by intelligent aliens elsewhere in the galaxy. So this movie folded Voyager into its plot line by recognizing that Voyager did go across the galaxy and did find out all knowledge there was in the universe and was coming back, one waiting for its next instructions. But <laughs> what concerns me about that is, <laughs> like, why did they call it Voyager? Well, because the craft, some of the the O Y, uh, a couple of letters rusted over, yeah. and so yeah. it was just V and some rust, and then G E R, so it called <laughs> itself Voyager. Voyager, yeah. And, and what worry, what concerned me is if this craft discovered all the information in the universe and was coming back for more you think it would have known its own name. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it would have, would point, have wiped yeah. the
5: dust off at some point. Yeah, <laughs> well, what's up with the
3: rocks,
2: you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, that's right. I never thought of that. Here's something people may not know about you. Just to shift gears for a second. Uh, during your time at the uh, University of Texas, uh, you joined the dance team and you study dancing styles such as jazz and ballet and Latin ballroom. Are you still an active dancer, and can you teach me a good dance to break out at my wedding this summer? No. Nah, I think <laughs> a
4: bust a move
2: at yeah, your abs- Absolutely.
3: Uh, I, I, I did perform in, in three... I uh, th- participate in three performing dance companies. They were college troops, so it's not like I was on Broadway or, or at the <laughs> right, Bolshoi. But I was in really great shape at the time, and uh, it's a kind of a conditioning that, that you never reach again because it's a strength and agility and flexibility. And so I, I, I long for being in that kind of shape, but when I was dancing, I wasn't writing books. I wasn't, you know... I do, so that, it's a chapter of my life, that I'm done with, and now I'm creating other chapters. And I find that the people who are sort of most miserable in their adulthood are those who didn't keep inventing new things to do in their lives, and they keep referencing back to their high school prom or to when they were, you know. And so I try to uh, I, I, I i take to heart that line from that tract called Desiderata. I don't know if you remember that. One I of the lines so, yeah. in it, it says, Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. So I've been, uh, people asked me if I wanted to like go on Dances with the Stars. It said it'd be fun, but then I wouldn't be doing this other. And I'm exactly not doing yeah. I'm trying to
6: get the universe out right now. So
3: you let be others take, to us. take on that mantle.
2: You wouldn't be on talking here to WCUR right now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
6: I also read that you were involved with uh, wrestling and rowing during your college years.
2: Yes, yes, and so, I was
6: an uh, avid athlete in, the, in each of those. And and
3: uh, and I, I was just at a wrestling match my my college. Uh, came into town to to wrestle uh, to Harvard Wrestle Columbia oh, and wow. so it's fun when I'm there watching it because you know my muscles feel it <laughs> <laughs> somebody gets into some kind of headlock or something and then yeah. I get a crick yeah. in my neck And then, yeah. you know so it's, I, I totally love it vicariously but I'm not getting back out there on the mat
2: is there anything you're not awesome at <laughs> How, <laughs> how's your karaoke right. how's your stamp collecting at this point <laughs> I'm just
6: assuming you collect everything in the universe, including intelligence. Is that how you have conferences? You just get a room full of fantastically intelligent people and suck the intelligence out of them. is that how you accomplished your you great finally achievements? Finally figured out
3: my plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're an intellectual
6: vampire, sir. I'm calling you out. Um, no,
3: there are things I do. I mean, if I'm re- if I'm really interested in something, I think you should try to be as as good as you can at it. Yeah. And if I give a quick example, uh, um, I was just on on John Stewart last night and.
2: Uh, oh, cool. You, you followed to... follow John, John Stewart up with us. That's awesome. I love it.
3: That's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. What a great and, opener uh, for <laughs> us. There are people that say to me, uh, oh, you're such a natural there with him, and they have no idea yeah. how much effort I put in to, to anticipate statements he might make, current yeah. events he might bring into the fold, and there's a huge mental exercise going on, and You've seen people at these interviews with Stephen Colbert or John Stewart where it's like they're deer in the headlights you know yeah. they, they, they they or they get it, they get aced by by uh, questions that just whiz mm-hmm. right by them right and I'm saying if I'm going to be on the show, let me be as best as I can be. And so I study them, and I said, what is the rhythm of his questions, and what, how deep into the news cycle does he reach for random stuff that has nothing to do with what I'm saying, yeah. and plant it in front of me to get me to react? So, so I try, so I work at it. And maybe not enough people try to be as good as they can be about all the things they find themselves engaged in.
6: How is it that you, of your intellectual ability, have? this power to convey such complex intellectual situations and even the solution to the situation into layman's terms so that people who have no idea what you're talking about get it just like that uh... yeah
3: the i would say it's not that i translate or dumb down or it's that it's i arrange the words in a way that are accessible to people who haven't previously had the occasion to think about it and that arrangement of words and concepts is not necessarily the way you would learn that same subject in a classroom leading towards a homework set or an exam. And not only that, I spend some part of my day plugging into pop culture. I watch every minute of the Academy Awards, and I watch every minute of the Super Bowl. I'm sort of like football, but not as much as most people who like football. But I watch it because now I can draw from pop culture references, if necessary, when I'm speaking about the laws of physics or the frontier of space exploration, or or, or I can, I'm pretty fluent with movies. We all love movies. Yeah. We, let's talk about, you know, the, the movies. And and I have colleagues who don't go to the movies, or who or who 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 chide any effort that they might have to invest in in meeting someone halfway. And I, I'm saying I'm not even going to meet you halfway. I'm going to be in your living room talking about this mm-hmm. because I it's my judgment that if I'm an educator. It's my responsibility to find you. It's not your responsibility to find me. Exactly. And this is what drives my efforts.
2: You, you know, I, and I, I hate to, I hate to do this to you, Dr. Tyson, but I know we're we're running out of time here. We're we're almost at the end of the interview. But my roommate Phil has a serious gripe with you about Pluto, and I I, I <laughs> want to like, get I, over I, it. I, that's what I told him. I I <laughs> I've, honestly I've told him for the past couple days he wanted me to ask you a question about Pluto, but honestly, I just I think you just summed it up. If you could just say to him right now, Phil, get over it. Could you do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> Would that be okay? Okay,
3: Phil, or, get over it. No, but, but I a reason for it. I mean, I, there, I, let me give you the best reason. How, how about the best reason, okay? Okay. Yes. If the planet Neptune were the size of a Chevy Impala parked on the curb, <laughs> okay? Okay. Uh, Neptune is, uh, you know, four or five times bigger than Earth. It's a little bit bigger than Earth. Mm-hmm. If, if, if a Chevy Impala were analogized to Neptune, you can ask, well, how big is Pluto compared to that? It's the size of a matchbox car on the curb. wow Wow. it's not the size of a mini cooper or vw beetle it is a matchbox car so pluto and plus it's more than half ice by volume bring it to where earth is right now heat from the sun would evaporate that ice it would grow a tail we have (laughs) words for things with tails in the solar system they're called comets so Mm -hmm. you just weigh all this evidence and
2: pluto really doesn't have a leg to stand on. I don't, I don't think so. Jake's, Jake's got one more question yeah. for you, if you wouldn't mind. Sure.
5: Yeah, I, I, I was just wondering, you know, as a music lover myself, I'd like to know, what's on Neil deGrasse Tyson's iPod? Like, what, the, what, what gets you pumped during the day?
3: I have a really odd mix of stuff, uh, but if I had to pick one genre that always calls to me, it's the blues.
2: Yes! yes. Nice. Yeah. Oh, it, yes. Tonight, you just made my day. That's oh. fantastic. The, the, okay.
3: The cool. depth of emotion the depth of emotion captured by good blues artists, I think that is music at its finest, reaching into your soul and twisting it and turning it. And my favorite blues lyric of all time is, Honey, if I never see you again, that's too soon for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my so, but but I, I love good classical, bombastic classical. I like, uh, I like Broadway musicals, uh, show tunes. Uh, I like uh, classic rock. Is what a what a timeless genre that is, and uh, Motown. I take in doses, you know, because yes. I, I get
2: fatigued by it, but I come back to it though every few months. Yeah, oh I, I, I do the same thing. I you know I get a little Jackson Five, I get a little lovely, sure. uh, Spinners, and then you're like, well, okay, well now it's time to take a break, get back. Yeah, on time's up. Right go. You got to get
6: deeper then. Absolutely, right. definitely. Right. Uh, I had one more question for you, uh, Dr. Tyson. Um, okay. I'm a recently graduated uh, geology student. Is there any? Words of advice that you could give me to keep me inspired to keep going in the scientific fields.
3: Yeah, uh, so uh, geology, you know, is is when I think of geology, I think of Earth as but one example of geology. Yeah. There's there's enormous frontiers waiting for the attention of geologists in the surfaces of the Moon, of Mars. So when I think of the frontier of geology, I'm not really thinking Earth, I'm thinking every other rocky place in mm-hmm. the solar system and in the galaxy. I'm tired away from natural disasters, much of which are geologically driven, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes. Yeah. I I can't wait for the day where geologists figure out how to tap the energy from a volcano. Would we, we tap oh, cakes? Yeah. That's going to be so let's, awesome. Stick, put a spigot in the side of a volcano, <laughs> tap that energy, drive the energy needs of the city that would otherwise be leveled by the lava ready to spill from it, and then that reduces the pressure from inside. It doesn't blow, and everybody benefits. The
2: whole world's (laughs) counting on Greg, I guess. Yeah, we all have Greg on our shoulders here. (sighs) Dr. Tyson, thank you again very much. My guest today, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can go pick up his book, The Space Chronicles. Facing the Ultimate Frontier, it is out now. Go pick it up. Thank you very much, Dr. Tyson. We appreciate you you being on. Thank
1: Thank you very much. Have a good day. As a little footnote to this entire story, this interview, um, Sam and I actually went to a live event with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Hershey in 2017, and I was actually one of the last people that got to ask him a question during the live show, and I referenced this interview, and, well, here you go. Yes,
2: hey, Dr. Tyson, and I had the, uh, the great pleasure of interviewing you on my college radio show in 2012 in Westchester, and it was amazing. It was Whoa! Oh, I'm, I'm pleased
7: that I agreed. What was? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just quickly, sure. there are people who, like my podcast, there are many they'll send me a note to request that I appear on their podcast, and they think that they're more likely to get me if they give the list of famous people that have previously been on the podcast. And I just don't care. No. <laughs> I just care if you have energy to do this and you've got a mission, and then I'm there. So I'm glad I got like, it. Wasn't, I wasn't sure that Bam Margera was going to really impress you all that much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so my question I asked you then, too, my roommate at the time had a huge Greek... Uh, like I'm with you about Pluto. He was really pissed about it. Get over it. Think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same thing you said then. Take I that, was Greg. If people still give you grief about Pluto, and if you still take it, go from anybody. To yeah, because
7: those who know my history may know that. But was anybody here dragged here by the person next to them? <laughs> <laughs> a few of you. Yeah. I mean, you have no idea who I am or what i have done or anything. So welcome. I get a little taste of it. But those in the know remember that 15 years ago, I was in the middle of the debate about the demotion of Pluto. And while I was not responsible for it, I got blamed by most people, because (laughs) in New York, at the facility that I run, and when we newly designed it, Pluto was reorganized away from the rest of the eight and put with dirty ice balls in the outer solar system. (laughs) And the New York Times caught wind of this, It had a page one story, Pluto not a planet, only in New York, and that's when the hate mail started coming in, from third graders, okay, and now those third graders are like grown up with other priorities, so I think they're done, and new third graders know about Pluto's issues from the beginning. So there's a, there's a generation kind of in between that's still a little bit pissed off. And all I can say is, Pluto had it and Get over it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Tell that to your friend. Oh, one, one quick thing. There was one, I'll I have to dig it up. Where a kid didn't want me to devote Pluto and call me a poo-poo head. <laughs> when that kid became 21, he wrote to me dead hand letter says, dear Dr. Tyson, um, when I was six years old, I wrote you a letter calling you a poo-poo head for your Pluto. I have since researched the question, and I've come to agree, agree entirely with your decision.
4: I apologize for the pain you might have felt.
1: So thanks again for tuning in today to this uh, special episode. Again, I know it's a little bit different than what we usually do, and it's a little bit shorter as well. But uh, you know, try not to try not to stress too much. You know, try not to lose the faith we're going to get through this. It sucks right now, but it, you know, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully this is just a lot faster than they're saying it's going to be. So we will see you again, hopefully in a week, maybe two weeks. We'll see. Whenever we have some content to give you, we'll put it out there and we'll let you know. So uh, stay safe. You know, don't forget to wash your fucking hands and we'll, uh, we'll see you again soon.
0: Foundation Radio is produced and recorded by Adam Barnard and Sam Krebs. Our intro music is Ugly by Dumb Ugly. Our outro music was recorded by Jason Sylvester and Carl Pinnell. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keane, and Jeff Quinn. Leave a five-star rating and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Foundation underscore Radio. Find us on Facebook at Foundation Radio Pod. This has been a Foundation Radio production.